Hey, good morning and Merry Christmas. I was uh, kind of curious to see who all would be here on Christmas Day, but I knew that it was going to be kind of nice because it would be just a special Calvary family holiday that we would get to spend together. Um, I know I don't keep track of everybody's birthday in the church. I wish I could, but uh, today we're celebrating, um, you know, obviously we're celebrating the birth of our Lord, but it's also Humphrey Bogart's birthday. My son is three years old today. Uh, tomorrow, it's uh, Lazira Harrington, and on Tuesday, Pastor Jim turns, anybody want to know? <laughs> He's going to be 66 years old, and I was thinking we could do like a, a Star Wars birthday, we could execute birthday 66 to, on Tuesday, <laughs> if anybody gets that reference. Anyways, let me pray, and we'll uh, begin. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for today, we thank you for letting us come together for this special Sunday a Sunday where we get to uh, just extol the glories of the incarnation and of you sending your son and what he did. We thank you for this season and uh, we pray that we would not lose sight of the, of the good gifts that you've given to us, uh, the real things that matter. Uh, I believe, Lord, that the more we have of you, the less we want of the world. And the less we're craving Jesus, the more we crave the world. So incline our hearts to your testimonies and not the selfish gain and turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. And bless our time, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds to hear, to understand your word. For we pray in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, the word of God comes to us today from the Gospel of John. It being a holiday, I thought I would take a little uh, excursion from the Hebrews uh, series that I'm working on. So just open up John, and we'll be right in the beginning there. This is called the... The prologue to John's gospel, we'll be looking at the first 18 verses of the gospel of John. The word became flesh. This is God's word for God's people. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Dave, would you like me to step back or side to side for the, the reverb? I, uh, I don't know if you notice, I, I sound like I'm the, the Wizard of Oz right now. <laughs> or it's like I'm the, the narrator in an old sci-fi movie. 
in the year 2000 when men are on Mars. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just, maybe it's just my, my own ears. <laughs> anyway, as I mentioned before, today is Christmas. And on this holiday, Christians throughout the world are celebrating the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the coming of the Savior. And we've all heard many times, and I don't have to tell you that uh, we don't actually know when Jesus was born, uh, but that it probably wasn't December 25th. Um, but that doesn't really matter when the actual day was, because today is when we celebrate the Lord's birth, and that is truly something worth celebrating and remembering. Folks that uh, spend all their lives in church, I don't know... Uh, if this is for everybody, but I know that there can be a tendency to get overly familiar or possibly even bored with the holidays that we celebrate. We think, oh, it's Christmas again. Oh, it's Easter again. But the Lord knows us well, and he knows that we need constant reminding, constant remembering of, uh, of the important things the scripture has to teach us. This is why he tells us to continually take communion, to show baptism, tells us to continually gather. Why, when you read the Psalms, it's always going over the great things of God. We need to remember these things. And Christmas is one day out of the year, but it really ought to be uh, the, the foundation for our thinking, for our theology for the rest of the year. We, we make New Year's resolutions. Um, we keep them until February, probably. But for us, perhaps we ought to start with Christmas Day being our new year and saying, Christ came on December 25th, and from this day for the rest of the year, we're going to remember that Christ came, that Christ came in the flesh. We're celebrating the arrival of the eternal Son of God into the manger at Bethlehem, and following this, the, the life, the ministry, the death, his resurrection, and his ascension, of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ are the most significant events in the history of the universe. Kind of think, why was the universe created? However long ago it was, what's the climax? What's the point? It came when the Lord God Almighty was born on this earth and walked the earth for his 33 years before his ascension. The eternal Lord of glory stepped with a human foot onto the earth. And I was just reminded of this passage in Job. I didn't write it down, but I think it's in Job 19. And he says, I know that at the last my Redeemer will stand on the earth. And Job had this hope. He says, he know, I know my Redeemer, I know my Lord is going to have a foot on this very earth. The eternal Lord of glory, in the words of Philippians 2, 7 to 8, took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So with Christmas time and the accompanying nativity scenes, the carols, the artwork, uh, Christmas Eve services, and all of the art and the imagery, the crucifixes, the icons, the paintings and statues, uh, professing Christians around the world seem to spare no efforts in commemorating the incarnation of the Son of God taking on human flesh. This isn't something that just exists amongst Protestant Christians in the United States, but this is, a, this is a, a worldwide event that we celebrate. And even in what we can consider um, heretical sects of Christianity, there is a belief that Jesus Christ was physically present on the earth. 
But the mention of heretical sects of Christianity makes me stop and think about how it's not really enough just to acknowledge, or merely to acknowledge, rather, the physical presence of Jesus of Nazareth on earth. You know, yes, as I said a moment ago, we ought to be celebrating the incarnation all year long. This ought to be really our, our guiding uh, star for the, for the rest of our years. Uh, but we, I think so often we can be very good at remembering that the Son of God came, but we can often forget why the Son of God became man. Why did God, why was it necessary for God to become flesh? This is actually, if you uh, dig into a, a fat old systematic theology book, they'll ask that question, was it necessary for Jesus Christ to come in the flesh and die on a cross, or could God have come up with some other way for salvation? It's a heavy question, but if you look at the facts, we see that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, did come, and he came for reasons that we need to remember. It's not just to have uh, um, these, these lovely aesthetic experiences that we have with the incarnation, but what was the actual purpose and what did Christ actually accomplish during his earthly ministry? These are, these are important areas, and in answering why the Son of God became man, we must examine and come to terms with several areas of critical biblical doctrine, which indeed do separate cults group, or cultic groups and heretical groups from biblical Christianity. Now, the answer to the question, who Jesus was, why Jesus came, really does uh, draw lines in the sand. And we saw this throughout Jesus' ministry. When he made claims of who he was, people left him, people walked away from him, people wanted to kill him because of what he said. We talked about that a few weeks ago with the, with the Hebrews message. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the people that were listening to him wanted to kill him for blasphemy because they knew which, what claim he was making. We have to have a true biblical Christology in order to be true biblical Christians. And Christology, of course, is the theologian's term for knowledge of Christ or study of Christ. You know, we're studying the writings of the Apostle John today, the beloved apostle, the, the guy that was just so, uh, so close and, and intimate with the Lord Jesus, the, the apostle that was leaning up next to our Lord at the Last Supper. You know, he leaned over on Jesus and said, who is it, when Jesus said he was going to betray him. Uh, one of the early church fathers, um, so this may or may not be true, it's just an interesting Thing. One of the early church fathers said that Joseph, Mary's husband, actually had a previous marriage and children prior to being married to Mary, and one of those children was Salome, John's mother. If that's true, and again, it's just some guy that said it, but if that's true, John would actually be Jesus' nephew. Um, again, we don't know if that's true, but just to, I'm just trying to make the point that uh, even from the Gospel of John itself, we see that John was close to Jesus. So John had this to say in 1 John 2, 21 to 23. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 
And again, when I went through uh, first, second, and third John over the last couple of years, I pointed out that the word antichrist only shows up in John's writings, if I remember correctly, and it always pertains to somebody who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So we need to catch that important part of that passage. Whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar and an antichrist. Whoever denies that the Son of God, whoever denies the Son of God also denies the Father. And I bring that up just to show how important it is to actually understand who Jesus is, what he accomplished in his life and ministry and death, and what it means that he is the Christ. Uh, it's been pointed out before, a lot of people think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Like you would have found him in the phone book by going to see Christ Jesus. Oh, here he is. We know, at least I, ho I hope you know by now, you've been here long enough, that Christ is a messianic title. It's, of course, the English butchering of the Greek word Christos, which is the translation of Mashiach, which is Messiah. So it's Jesus Messiah. When we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're saying the Messiah promised from the Old Testament is here, and it's Jesus Christ. Understanding this is a matter of eternal life and death. Uh, we're very careful with, uh, with how we take care of our physical lives. We put our seatbelts on, hopefully. Um, we make sure we don't drink the stuff under the sink. But are we just as careful with the stuff in Scripture, with our spiritual health, with our spiritual life? So who is Jesus? What is Jesus? What is the Christ? How is Jesus the Christ? And why was Jesus Christ born into a little manger in Bethlehem? And all of these questions are questions which are expanded and answered in, in a little book called the New Testament, uh, where the writers address these things at length, constantly going back to the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And we can't fully answer all of these things in their completeness in one Sunday morning message, but we can spend our time examining some of them to a limited degree. And that's actually exactly how the Apostle John opens his gospel this morning. He's answering some of these questions to a degree just in the opening of his book. Just about a thousand years ago, uh, between 1094 and 1098, a Benedictine monk or a churchman named Anselm wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, which is usually translated into English as why God became man. I was going to say that Anselm was Italian, but Italy didn't exist when he was born. He's from Burgundy. He became famous, you probably know him in history, as St. Anselm of Canterbury in, in England, but he originally was from northern Italy. But in this book, he was attempting to explain and to address the question of why the eternal Son of God humbled himself, took on human form, and died on a Roman cross. Why God became man. And as it's Christmas, we, we also need to reflect on this question. We are celebrating the birth of the Savior, but why was the Savior born? Why did God become man? Today, we're learning from God's Word found in the Gospel of John. And as I mentioned before, these first 18 verses are called the prologue to the rest of the Gospel. In these verses, John lays out at least, there's many more, but at least three big claims regarding the identity and the attributes of Jesus and how these attributes pertain to the Lord's mission on earth. In other words, the prologue to John's gospel tells us a great deal about who Jesus is, 
so that we can better understand what he does and how he's able to do it. To learn who he is and what he is will help us better, better understand why he came and what he accomplished. So these three big claims or big truths, as I wrote them down, are first that Jesus Christ is the creator God. Second, that Jesus Christ is the savior God. And third, Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. And I'll say those two more times in the message if I was talking too fast. We are going to look at these three big truths today, but I don't want to give the impression that these three truths are the only things to learn from this passage. As I was working on this message this week, I, um, I just realized that there's just so much in here that we're going to, some of it we're just going to skim over just because it can go so deep. We could probably listen to someone preach through this passage every Sunday for a year and still not plumb the depths of uh, what we can learn here. But let's begin with the first three verses of our passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This opening statement from John's Gospel is the clearest and most profound Trinitarian statements in all of Scripture, and, and there are others as well. It's so clear in what it claims about the Word that various cults and sects have had to either flatly deny what, what it says or rewrite it in order to avoid its claims. People, some um, cultic groups will actually say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They actually have to insert the A to avoid what this clearly says. But what do we see right in the first verse? In the beginning, using the same language that we see in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning was something that John calls the Word. And I'm sure you've all heard many times that the Word is the English translation for the Greek word logos. Some people say logos, some people say logos. I, I, when I lived in Bellingham, Almost everybody in my church worked at this Bible software company called Lagos, and they all said it differently, so you don't feel badly if you're pronouncing it funny. I'm just gonna stick with Lagos for consistency's sake. Uh, to avoid some confusion as well, I'm going to use Lagos in the place of word uh, in general. So in this opening statement, John writes, in the beginning was the Lagos, the Lagos was. And when we read through this quickly in our English Bibles, we miss the significance of a word in here. The word was. The, uh, one pastor and commentator said, there never was a time when Christ did not exist because the word was in the Greek imperfect tense, which means was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse bears this sense. In the beginning was continuing the Word, and the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continually God. Or as one of my friends accurately, though ungrammatically concluded, Jesus always was wasing. That is precisely it. Jesus Christ is preexistent. He always was continuing. The Logos, John says, always was always had being, always had existence. 
co-eternal with God. And additionally, this logos was with God. The logos was co-eternal alongside God, yet the logos is shown to be distinct from God. That was in the beginning with God, and the word was with God. And finally, the apostle John drops a bomb on his readers and says, the logos was God. And right from the start in John's gospel, the apostle is making some massive doctrinal statements that can confuse and confound us. But for first century readers especially, and especially fiercely monotheistic Jews of the time of Christ, this would have been paradigm shattering. The Jews, as you'll probably recall, were instructed in the Pentateuch to tell their children the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is, this is the foundation for Judaism. The Lord is one. So when John, as a Jew, says the Logos was with God and the Logos was God, this is, this is a, I don't know, it's, I guess in acting terms, you could say this is breaking the fourth wall. This is, this is something which changes everything. The Logos was in the beginning and co-eternal with God. The Logos was with God, together with yet distinct from God, and the Logos was God. This shouldn't be something that you easily grasp or something that makes sense to you. I, so often people come up to me and they'll say, well, the Trinity is like fill in the blank. And as soon as they say blank, I can name what heresy they're unintentionally espousing. Say, so, well, it's like, it's like a clover. Like, no, no, no. Clover is part. Each member of the Trinity is fully God. Like, oh, it's like a candle. It's heat, light, and flame. Like, no, no. Those are parts. The Trinity is fully God. There's nothing like the Trinity in all of creation. As soon as you say the Trinity is like, you're wrong about something. There are mysteries in scripture which the human mind wasn't even designed to apprehend, let alone fully comprehend. So don't feel badly that uh, this is something that makes your eyes go across wide, across, because this is something that Muslims and Jews and other uh, monotheistic religions criticize Christianity for, for being internally incoherent. How can it be three in one? We don't know all of the, 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 the fully comprehensive understanding of the Trinity. We only know what scripture says. God is multipersonal. He is three in one. The Logos, while being listed by the Apostle John, is a distinct entity alongside God, is also designated God. So from this verse, we see that the Logos is divine, and, as I mentioned a second ago, the, the God is multipersonal. He exists as more than one person, while not losing his oneness or unity. God is not three gods. Jesus is not a lesser God. Jesus is not just a, a magician. He is fully God. God is one in three persons. And remember the lyric, it's one of our precious classic hymns, holy, holy, holy. It says, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. My son has this little catechism he likes to go through before bed every night, and he's, he's one of those guys that like, needs the routine. We can't leave the room until we do the catechism, but one of the questions says, how many persons are there in God? And he says in his little toddler voice, there are three persons in one God, the Father, 
the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. One God eternally existing in three persons. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of these key doctrines of our faith, which separates true Christianity from false religions. Every false religion will deny the Trinity. In addition, every person who denies the Trinity belongs to a false faith. I worked with a, a guy many years ago um, who belonged to a, what, what he called a Christian church. It was called Church of Christ. I don't know whether that's a specific denomination or just the name of his particular family, but he said there's no Trinity. The Trinity is a lie. And he, he had one of his pastors write me a letter saying how naive I was for believing in the Trinity. But this goes to show us, even if you call yourself Christian, even if you call your church Christian, if you deny what's essential doctrine, essential to what God truly is, we're belonging to a false faith. We're believing something incorrect. And as I mentioned with the clover and the candle, when we ourselves try to plumb too deeply into the mystery of the Trinity, we will inevitably slip into heterodoxy or orthodoxy. Uh, I think it was John Calvin, it might have been one of the other great theologians, said, where the Bible ceases to speak, we must cease to tread. We should not go beyond what is written into speculation, um, particularly start claiming that, that our speculation is, is true doctrine. Um, you remember at the end of Revelation, God says, don't add to this book or the things that happen in it are gonna happen to you. Uh, Proverbs 30, I think it's eight and nine says, it might be five or six, but it says, do not add to God's word lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And I think it's in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we warned you not to go beyond what is written. And this stands for many mysteries in scripture. We stick with what scripture says because we know the Holy Spirit inspired it. And we know it's not just from our imagination or, or something we ate last night for dinner. The doctrine of the Trinity it is a fascinating study, and it is, as I said, essential doctrine, and it's worth the time for you to, to, to read about it and to read about the early developments and the early battles for this doctrine in a good systematic theology book, uh, but we don't have time to go much further than I already did this morning. What we can say now is that it is essential doctrine for biblical Christianity, and John, the apostle, makes this doctrine a central item in his gospel. He hasn't even gotten through the first paragraph yet, and he's making this as a, this, uh, as a foundation for the rest of the gospel. Why does he do that? Well, John is making a strong case for the identity of Jesus Christ. This prologue is saying, this is who Jesus is, and then we're going to get into what Jesus does in the rest of the story. It's not only that he existed and lived in first century Palestine, but that God himself came in human form. And John's purpose in saying this, and indeed for writing his whole gospel, is so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in the Lord Jesus, we may have life in his name. Towards the end of the gospel, John says this very thing. I, I didn't have to make it up because John already wrote it. John 20, verses 30 to 31 says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, John says, I'm showing you who Jesus truly is, 
and what he truly did in order for you to truly believe in him and be truly saved. And this gives us a clue to the question that Anselm asked of why God became man. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. What we have so far in this passage is the presenting of the Lagos along with the designation of the Lagos as God. And as if to clear up any confusion, like, does he mean God, God, or little g, God? John adds, verses 2 and 3, he says, he, again referring to the Logos, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The apostle says that the Logos is a person, not an it. John calls the Logos a him and says that all things were created through him. All things created through him. All things. So if it falls under this broad category of all things, which I think includes all things, the Logos created it. In verse 1, and I mentioned that there are, uh, uh, what's the word, butchered versions of the Bible out there by cults who say that Jesus was a God, but if they say he's a God, but he was the first created being by the God. He can't be the first created being if he created all things. There was not anything that was made that he didn't make. This is, uh, there are two other passages in Scripture which highlight and corroborate this creative role of Jesus. I read them out in the Hebrews message, but here they are again. Colossians 1, 16 to 17, and Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. Colossians reads, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Logos, the eternal God, is the causal agent. He's the purpose and the goal of all creation. So again, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we must remind ourselves that the baby in the manger is the very same God who created all things and is the one for whom all things were created to glorify. At the beginning of this message, I said there were at least three big claims that John makes about the identity and the attributes of Jesus, and this is the first. Jesus Christ is our creator God. Let's move on to uh, verses 4 to 13. And this is one of those passages which, uh, is, which could do with about three messages in itself. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. I found it kind of funny as I was reading commentaries on this passage that a lot of them didn't really know what to do with it. I was actually kind of frustrated because I bought this, uh, this nice hardback R.C. Sproul commentary on John, and he didn't even cover the last bunch of these verses. I was like, where did, did the chapter fall out somewhere? It didn't even touch it, but there's so much here. And for the other commentators, a lot of them seems to have problems with verses 6 to 8. They said this was a, a, a random tangent in the passage. Like John just kind of went out for a little while before he came back and is unconnected to everything else. But I think that's kind of a thoughtless idea, particularly when you realize that in saying something like that, you're insinuating, whether consciously or not, that the Holy Spirit inspires pointless tangents in Scripture. These verses about John the Baptist are put in there for a purpose. And they're there to say to the readers that Jesus Christ is the light and that by believing in him we may have eternal life. And that John the Baptist himself was witnessing to this fact. John the Baptist was pointing folks to Jesus. In these verses, they're here to show that Jesus Christ came as a savior for all who would believe in him, for all who would turn from darkness, who would repent and place their faith savingly in the Lord Jesus. And the apostle John has just shown us in verses 1 through 3 that the Logos is the creator. And now in verses 4 through 13, he shows us the second of the big truths that I'm covering today. Jesus Christ is our Savior God. The creator God is also simultaneously our Savior God. A few chapters on from where we are in John, Jesus tells this very thing to the religious leader Nicodemus. John 3, 16 to 18, he says, you should know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus Christ is our savior God and again, as we reflect on the nativity, we can see in the manger our creator God who has come as our savior God. And the apostle John makes this incredible link of creator savior himself in verses nine through 10 of our passage where he says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He says, he made the world, he came into the world. As was said in the beginning of the message today, the creator God has stepped with a human foot upon the earth to be a savior. And at this point, after building up these verses, John brings his prologue, I think, to a climax when he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to recall John was an eyewitness to these things. John was there when Jesus was tried by the high council of the priest's house. John was there watching Jesus being crucified. Jesus from the cross looked down to John 
and Mary was there, and Jesus committed Mary into John's care. John went with Peter to and saw the empty tomb. John saw these things. This, this account wasn't written hundreds of years later. This wasn't written by somebody who didn't know. This was a guy who knew Jesus Christ personally, and he says, the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration. John heard the voice of God say, this is my son. Listen to him. Now, while we have the benefit of knowing who the Logos was from the beginning of the passage, imagine that you were one of the original readers of this text, and you, you haven't already heard a Christmas message in your life, and you don't know how the story is going to end. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a fun exercise to do, but it's, it's also good hermeneutics to imagine who the original audience was, what was their cultural background, how would they have understood the words, and what would they have been understanding in the reading up until this point. John hasn't said, this is Jesus of Nazareth yet. He's been saying, this is the Logos. He is the light. He is God. He has come into the world. So he says, so, so far in the narrative, he said, he's revealed that the Logos is eternal. The Logos is distinct from God. The Logos is God. The Logos is the light and the life of men. The Logos is the creator of the world, and all things were made through the Logos. John the Baptist is a witness to tell people about the Logos, that all might believe in the Logos. The Logos came into the world to his own people, who then rejected him. Yet, all who believe in the Logos will be given the gift of eternal life and given the right to become children of God. And in verse 14, we read, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. In the history of Israel, there were two, at least two, major events which occurred with the people building the tabernacle and when the people built the temple. You know, both of these places were where the presence of God was manifested in, in a unique and, and visceral way. We know that God is spirit. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in the, in the temple and in the tabernacle, his presence was, was experienced, you could say, in a way in nowhere else on earth. And this is, in these two places, this is where the sacrifices that happened for sin. Uh, this is where the law was kept. This is where the priests made intercession for the people and their sin. These were the places where the Holy of Holies was. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. These places were the, the visible tangible sign that God was with his people and that God dwelt with his people. One of the big tragedies in the book of Ezekiel, it was, I think it's in chapter 10, is when the Holy Spirit leaves the temple. And the, the vision is saying God's not there anymore. God has, God has left you people in judgment. So the temple, very important to the history of Israel. So when the original readers of the Gospel of John came to verse 14, they would have noticed something incredible. When it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Greek word translated dwelt literally means tabernacled. The Logos became flesh and tabernacled among us. God himself has come in the flesh. The time for the tabernacle and the time for the temple has passed because God does not manifest himself in the temple any longer, but in Christ, he now is the temple, as Jesus himself said in John 2, 19. 
And again, remember in 2.19, he says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll build it up. And John adds, he was speaking about himself. When John and the other disciples looked into the face of Jesus, they were looking at God manifested before them. In Luke chapter 2, when Simeon took the baby Jesus in his arms and held him up, he was holding Yahweh become flesh. When Joseph and Mary looked into the face of the newborn Jesus, they were looking into the face of the eternal Logos, by whom and for whom all things were created. And so, the Apostle John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John continues in verse 15, referring to the John the Baptist, he says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. The Lord Jesus Christ purchased for himself a people with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says this, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself because Jesus bought you with his own blood. He gave his life for the church so that many would be saved. And through Christ, instead of remaining under God's wrath for our sin, we are shown grace because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We don't look to our own works. We don't look to our own records. We look to what Christ has done. And what did he do? Why did God become man? Why was it necessary for him to become man? The Logos took on human flesh and dwelt among us to live a perfect life of devotion and obedience to God that we could not and frankly would not. He came with the intention of going to the cross to bear the penalty for sin that we deserve. It was our debt that he paid and he was condemned in our place and he died in our place. To be able to bear our sin fully, the sin of all of fallen humanity, to receive the full force of God's wrath against our sin, to be an acceptable sacrifice to God, Jesus needed to be fully God. Imagine that he was just a man, that he wasn't God, but he was a perfect man. Imagine he, imagine he was sinless his entire life and did everything perfectly. What would he have earned? His own salvation. He couldn't pay for anybody else's sin. The Psalm says, what can one man give for another man's life? He had to be God in order to be our sin bearer. But to represent us, to be our substitute, our representative, he had to be fully human. This is why we embrace, why we guard solus Christus, Christ alone. When we say Christ is the only way, it's not a bigoted statement. There literally was no one else who could have done what Christ did. Only Christ can be our savior because only Christ was both God and man. And nothing and no one else can possibly save us. In the old church, there was a hymn in Latin with the line, Jesus Christus, where is Deus, et where is homo? 
although I think you CC kids will probably tell me that's ecclesiastical Latin and not classical Latin, and so maybe it's various. But in English, this means Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. This is a, this is a confession of the church from, from the beginning of the church. Jesus Christos, veros Deus et veros homo. It is an essential confession of our faith that we believe that Jesus Christ was and is truly and fully God and truly and fully human. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. So the writer of the Hebrews says, in order to, to redeem us, in order to be our savior, he had to be made like us, not partially like us. In the early church, there were uh, a lot of um, heresies that began to crop up in the years following the closing of the canon. People were saying that Jesus wasn't fully God. Uh, he only appeared to be God. John himself dealt with this heresy called docetism, which said that Jesus wasn't physically here. He was just, a, a, just appeared to be man. Um, there are other heresies which say that Jesus had a, uh, didn't have a human soul. He wasn't, a, or he had a divine soul, or he was some amalgamation of God and man. They were, they were trying to find all of these ways to make sense of the incarnation, but they were missing this verse that says, he had to be like his brothers in every respect. Jesus Christ was fully human. He ate, he slept, he died, he wept, he was angry, he was sad. Um, there's a scene in Passion of the Christ, which I just recall, where it shows uh, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy running down a street, and he slips and skins his knee, and his mother comes and, and comforts him. And you think, that, that was, that, that's a fiction that Mel Gibson was writing, but that event probably happened. I mean, I have a, a, a three-year-old who likes to run around our living room, and he falls on his big head every once in a while. Like, our Lord had to learn how to walk. Our Lord grew baby teeth. Our Lord got sick. He was like us in every respect so that he could be our merciful and our faithful high priest. And this is our third big truth of the passage this morning. Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. He is God in the flesh. And here is the answer to Anselm's question. Why did God become man? To be the savior of all who would believe in his name, to be the only being in existence who could stand in our place and redeem us from the curse, to be our Lord, to be our priest, our prophet, our king, to be our mediator, to be our propitiation, our substitute, our advocate, to be our friend, to be our brother, to heal the sick, to comfort the weak, and to show us God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In all the history of redemptive revelation, no one ever saw God fully or completely. Not in the visions of Isaiah or Ezekiel 
or Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, or Moses on the mountain, as the Lord says in Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 33:20, no one can see my face and live. If any of these folks would have truly seen the full glory of God, they would have dropped dead. And yet, at the end of the prologue to John's gospel, and as we see later in John's gospel, Jesus, the eternal Logos, the word made flesh, has made God known. So our three big truths, Jesus Christ is the creator God. Jesus Christ is the savior God. Jesus Christ is the incarnate God. That Christmas, we rejoice, we remember, we celebrate that Jesus was born. We commemorate his birth, and Christians around the world embrace the coming of the Messiah. And I hope that from the prologue of John's gospel, that we remember that this baby in the manger, when we see him, that this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, these truths that we learn today stretch our imaginations, they stretch our minds. But I pray we would have the humility to recognize the things we don't understand and accept the things that you have shown us in Scripture. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply these things to our hearts, that we would be people who who know Jesus and who love him, who revere him, who exalt him, Lord, who represent him. I pray, Lord, that we would give you glory, that you would glorify yourself in our lives. And I do also pray, as I said before, that we would set our annual compass upon these truths. You have come, you have redeemed a people for yourself. And we praise Jesus and we pray these things in his name. Amen.